You may be seated. My guess is many of you like to read novels. And tell me if, if I'm right or not. Uh, when you receive a novel, whether you get it from Amazon or you get it from the library, and you go home and you sit in your comfy chair and you open up the novel because you can't wait to read it, my guess is you don't begin two-thirds of the way through the novel. You don't open up the book and say, I think I'll begin right here in chapter 26. This looks like a good place. Yeah, I want to submit to you that that's how many people read the Bible. We have God's inspired, infallible novel, the story of how He has been working with His people since the beginning of time. And many people pick up God's book and they open up to Matthew 1.1. Two-thirds of the way through the Bible. Now, let me be very honest with you. That's not a good way to read a book. It really is best to start at the beginning. And the very first book of the Bible is called Genesis. Does anybody know what Genesis means? Beginning. Yeah, that's the beginning of God's work. And that's where you should start so that you can see how God begins His work and how He works with His people all throughout history. Now, let me also say that if you're going to read the New Testament, you need to understand that the New Testament assumes an understanding of the Old Testament. That's very important. The New Testament writers assume that you have already read the Old Testament and at least have a cursory understanding of what's taking place. Let me prove my point. Turn to Matthew 1.1. Very first chapter, very first verse of the New Testament, also known as the New Covenant. And what do we read in Matthew 1.1? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you've got a Bible, you're a new Christian, and you opened up the Matthew 1.1, your very first question should be, Who's David? Who's Abraham? Probably heard about Jesus, but who's David? Who's Abraham? And, and why am I told that he's the son of David, the son of Abraham? Why is that important? Very good questions. And if you haven't read the Old Testament, guess what? You're not going to have a clue. You're, you're not going to understand the connections that Matthew's trying to make. What is Matthew trying to say? Matthew is trying to say that there were promises made to David. We refer to them technically as the Davidic covenant. And in 2 Samuel 7, 12-13, God promised King David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and reign forever. And now that descendant has come. That's why it's significant that Jesus is a son of David. And how about the fact that he's a son of Abraham? Well, God made some promises to Abraham as well. And we refer to those promises as the Abrahamic covenants. We read part of it in Genesis 17, 17, where God promised Abraham that he would be God to him and his children. And then slowly this covenant would unfold more and more as more 
promises were revealed. But in Genesis 22:18, God promised Abraham that all the families on the earth would be blessed in the seed, singular, of Abraham. And that seed, according to Galatians 3, refers specifically to Jesus Christ. So now we have the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, and the Abrahamic covenants and the Davidic covenants are about to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ who will inaugurate the new covenant. But if you haven't read your Old Testament, I have to be honest with you, this isn't going to make much sense. So this is very important. Now, when it comes to baptism, everybody that I talk to, at least, agrees that baptism is the sign of the new covenants. Everybody I, I know of agrees with that, whether you're coming from a Reformed position where you baptize babies or whether you're coming from a Baptistic view where you just baptize those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Everybody that I know of says, yes, baptism is a sign of the covenant. So far, so good. And then my follow-up question is, now what is the significance of the sign of the covenant? Why does God have us administer the sign of the covenant? And that's the question I have for you this morning. As you sit there and think about that, you, you have a good answer to that. And I won't call upon you. I won't put you on the spot. <laughs> but when I do so, many people kind of have a, a blank look on their face, to be honest with you. And that's because they haven't read the Old Testament very well, where the significance of the covenant is laid out for us. Because God really doesn't repeat it much in the New Testament. He doesn't have to because He assumes, hey, I've talked about that over and over again in the Old Testament. Haven't you read the Old Testament? And some Christians go, oh, yeah, I guess maybe I haven't. So baptism is a sign of the New Covenant. But where do we learn about the guidelines and instructions of how covenants work? We learn about them in the Old Testament. Now, as we talk about the New Covenant, we need to realize that some things are the same, some things are different. I like to use this very simple illustration. Uh, we could compare the new covenants to new detergents. Let's say a company says, you know, we have this new and improved detergents. And you ask, well, how is it new and improved? And you say, well, the old detergent didn't get out the stain. But the new detergent now has the power and capacity to get rid of the stain. I would submit to you that that's one of the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant couldn't quite get out the sin stain, if you will, but the New Covenant is more powerful and is able to get it out. When it comes to covenants, and the New Covenant specifically, some things are the same, some things are different. For example, both covenants have sacrifices. Technically, under the Old Covenant, you had sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. But under the New Covenant, you just have one sacrifice in Jesus Christ. He was sacrificed once and for all to take away sin. So you have some things that are the same, like a sacrifice, but some things that are different. Now the sacrifice is in Jesus Christ. Under the Old Covenant, you had laws. These laws were written on, under, on stone. Tablets of stone. In the New Covenant, guess what? 
we have that law written as well. Only that law is now written where? On our hearts. Same law, but now it's written on our hearts. Under the Old Covenant, there were consequences, positively and negatively, depending on obedience or disobedience towards the covenant. Under the New Covenant, you have the same thing. If you walk in faithfulness, God will bless you. If you turn away from God, if you become a covenant breaker, there are consequences. So some things are the same, some things are different. Probably thinking so far, so good. (laughs) Under the Old Covenant, children were included in the covenants, and children received the sign of the covenants. Now, let me stop there for a moment. I think we all can agree on that. Under the Old Covenant, children of believers were included and the children received the sign of the covenant, specifically male children, and the sign of the covenant was circumcision. Now, here is probably where we divide company. I want to submit to you that I believe, and again, this is this is something we don't have to divide over, but if nothing else, we can at least understand each other this morning. So if we have believer's baptism over here, let's say, and we have pedo-baptism sitting over here, after the service, we can cross the aisle and we can give each other the right hand of fellowship. <laughs> okay. I believe that under the New Covenant, children are still included and children should still receive the sign of the covenant. Only now it's not circumcision, now it's baptism. I believe there's continuity when it comes to the covenant that way. Some will say, I believe there's discontinuity. I do not believe that under the new covenant, children are included. Therefore, I do not believe that children should receive the sign of the new covenant. Now, before we go there, let me just explain the Old Covenant a little bit so you at least can have an understanding of how God worked with His people and their children for 2,100 years. Now, Genesis 17.7, I read the Abrahamic Covenant. And this is very important because I believe the Abrahamic Covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ who brings about the New Covenant. So I believe there's a very close connection between the Abrahamic Covenant and the New Covenant. In my mind, the New Covenant is basically the fulfillment of the Abrahamic Covenant. It's more than that, but I'm just trying to simplify it for your understanding. Now, notice what God promises in verse 7. And I just love this verse. God says to Abraham, And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. This is an everlasting covenant. This covenant doesn't end. It continues on. You say where? It continues on in the new covenant where it finds fulfillment. But notice what God promises. I've established this covenant with you to be God to you and your offspring after you. The Abrahamic covenant is a Spiritual covenants. That's very important. I've heard some Baptists say that the Abrahamic covenant was a temporal, earthly covenant 
alone. And I say, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Right here, God is not just promising land. We see that in verse 8 that I skipped over earlier. Yes, that's part of it. But He is promising Abraham, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be your son's God. I'm going to be your grandson's God. I'm going to be your great-great-grandson's God. Forever, if God should be so faithful. I don't think you can get any more spiritual than that, friends. This is what he is. This is a spiritual covenant. I'd like you to turn to Romans 4.11, where this is also made very clear. Romans 4.11. This is a key verse for the baptism debate. He, talking about Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. What is circumcision? It is the sign of justification, beloved. It's the sign of righteousness by faith. So I like to say that Abraham received believer's circumcision. He believed, was credited to him as righteousness. He was justified in the sight of God. And then he took upon himself the covenant sign, which again is a spiritual sign of righteousness through faith. Now, this is important because what did God tell Abraham to do with this spiritual sign of righteousness through faith? He said, Abraham... I want you to put it on Isaac when he is eight days old. So if you hold to believer's baptism, at least understand this. Because I know some people are uncomfortable when they see a spiritual sign being put on a baby. If you're uncomfortable with that, at least realize this. Even if we disagree, at least realize this. For 2,100 years, God commanded His people to put the sign of the covenant on children. And, this is what I read in my devotions again this morning, Abraham, when he was going back to Pharaoh, or excuse me, not Abraham, Moses, when he was going back to Pharaoh, was almost killed by God because he failed to circumcise his son. Fortunately, Zipporah, his wife, intervened, circumcised their son, and then God uh, didn't kill Moses which is a reminder that it was very important to God for the sign of the covenant to be put upon children. And if you read the end of Genesis 17, he says, if you don't place the sign of the covenant upon your children, you've broken my covenant. And I am very displeased. So those of us in the Reformed camp who see a continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, read those passages and say, wow, that's what God thinks about the sign of the covenant and children. And that's why when we come to the new covenant and we see the new sign of baptism, we say, this is what I believe God thinks of covenants and the sign of the covenant and their significance towards children. And we carry that over. Even if you don't think it should be carried over, at least understand we think it should be carried over and we read about covenants in the Old Testament and we think it has significance for today. This is what the great reformer John Calvin said in relation to the Abrahamic covenant. Indeed, it is most evident 
that the covenant which the Lord once made with Abraham is no less in force today for Christians than it was of old for the Jewish people. And that this word relates no less to Christians than it related to the Jews. Unless, perhaps, we think that Christ, by His coming, lessened or curtailed the grace of the Father. Now, seeing that the Lord, immediately after making the covenant with Abraham, commanded it to be sealed in infants by an outward sacrament, what excuse will Christians give for not testifying and sealing it in their children today? Now, again, I'm not asking you to believe. What I'm asking you to do is to understand um, why we baptize children and to see the connection that we have. We think the Abrahamic covenant is relevant today for the new covenant. And if nothing else, this can provide understanding in the body of Christ. R.C. Sproul mentioned that when he was a professor in college, he would have those who held to the Reformed view of baptism write a paper arguing for the other position, believer's baptism, and he would have the students in the class who held to believer's baptism write a paper arguing for the baptizing of infants. And he said, the purpose is so that we can at least understand one another, not just the straw men arguments. And as a result, we can come together. And I really do think we can come together. Um, John MacArthur holds to believer's baptism. Uh, R.C. Sproul holds to the biblical reform view of paedo-baptism. Sorry, I just had to, just had to throw that in there. We can laugh about it. It's okay. But those guys are the best of friends, even though they have different views on baptism. And again, in our church, uh, we think baptism is important. It's significant. But it's secondary, and we don't divide over different views of baptism. Uh, Professor John Murray writes of paedo-baptism, and again, just so you can understand where we're coming from, the argument in support of infant baptism is based upon the essential unity and continuity of the covenant of grace administered to Abraham. That, that's it. That's where Reformed people are coming to. They see a continuity. They see a unity in how God works with His people through covenants and the sign of the covenants. So we see uh, unity and continuity unfolded in the Mosaic and Davidic covenants and attaining to its highest fruition in the New Covenant. The New Covenant is the administration of grace that brings to fulfillment the promise given to Abraham. In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And again, I think that's important. I said it earlier. Let me say it again, though. I believe the New Covenant basically is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic Covenant. Murray goes on to say, it is the blessing of Abraham that comes on the Gentiles through Christ. Abraham is the father of all believers. And they are Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. The promises fulfilled in Christ were given to Abraham with covenantal confirmation. So it is proper and necessary to say that the new covenant is the fulfillment and unfolding of the Abrahamic covenant. Since the infant seed of the faithful were embraced in the covenant relation, and there is no indication that this feature of covenant administration has been abrogated under the new covenant, 
The conclusion derived from the unity and continuity of the covenant of grace is that the same privileges belong to the infancy of believers under the new covenant. So, just two points to make it real clear. We see a connection with the Abrahamic covenant and those in the Reformed camp don't see the abrogation of that covenant or the administration of the covenant time. In other words, just to make it real simple, we don't see anything in the New Testament that says, nope, 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 God is working in a totally different way. Now, when you enter into covenant with me, you don't bring your children. I know under the old covenant, you used to bring your children with you and you would give them the sign of the covenant. But under the new covenant, your children don't come and you don't give them the sign of the covenant. Those in the Reformed camp do not see that transition. They do not see that overturning of how God works in relationship to children and the covenant. And again, just trying to make it very clear uh, where we're coming from as Reformed folks. One of the things that I think it might help to mention is that uh, both camps are coming to their view of children and baptism by drawing inferences from Scripture. In other words, we have no explicit statements in the New Testament saying, believers, baptize your children. We don't have that. So I can't point to those who hold to believers' baptism and say, hey, you're not being faithful right here. God says, baptize your children. You're disobedient. On the other hand, those who hold to believers' baptism can't point to any explicit passages where it says, God forbids the baptizing of children in the New Covenant. We don't have either one of those passages. So both sides are drawing from inferences that are derived from their theology. And if we can be honest about that, that will help us to be tolerant of one another. Because this, this is a big issue. There's a lot involved. And if nothing else, even just hearing me talking about covenant and the relationship, maybe you can see that this is actually a little bigger of an issue that you may have thought of at first. And because there's nothing explicit in relationship to children, hopefully, Lord willing, we can be more tolerant. Now, let me, if I could, just give you one verse from the New Testament that relates to children. I, I think this is important. 1 Corinthians 7, 14. And it's a, it's a fascinating verse. And it's important for a number of reasons. It tells us how God views our children. And that should be important to all of us, regardless of what camp we're in. And also, once again, I think it shows that the New Testament assumes the Old Testament once again. 1 Corinthians 7.14 uh, Let me give you the context. The context is a mixed marriage. In other words, a believer married to an unbeliever. Uh, because when they got married... Uh, they were in the same category. They were both unbelievers. But one of them came to faith in Christ. And now the husband or the wife, and it doesn't matter, is saying, uh-oh, now I'm a Christian. My husband or my wife isn't a Christian. What about the children? What, what does that mean for the position of my children? And Paul addresses it right here. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife. When it says unbelieving husband, obviously, when it says holy, that's not in the salvation sense. 
holy in the sense of somehow God sets that person aside. It doesn't mean they're saved or not. But they are holy in the sense that God sets them apart. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are what? Holy. See, your children, are, they're not unclean. What does it mean to be unclean? Well, once again, you have to think in Old Testament categories. To be unclean in the Old Testament was to be cast outside the community. If people were unclean for whatever reason, there were many things that made them unclean, they had to go outside the camp, they had to purify themselves. Sometimes that took a whole week and then they could come back into the community. When God says, your children are not unclean, they're clean, He's saying they are a part of the covenant community. They are not outside the camp. So I think even here in the New Testament, we have at least a glimpse, at least a principle that says children are seen by God, not neutral, not pagans who don't have anything to do with God, but as part of the covenant community. So when we have some baptisms with children a little later, and you hear about their engrafting into Christ, I want you to realize that we think they are a part of the covenant community even before they're saved and express faith in Jesus Christ. They're, they are still set aside for God in a way that other children are not. Uh, very simply, uh, those from the Reformed camp baptize their children based on the promise of God to be God to you and your children. So a little later, what you're going to hear me say, and I'll just be real clear now so you can understand what's happening, I will say it's my privilege based on the promise of God to be God to you and your children to baptize you. And then after that, when we go out back, I will say, based on your profession of faith, it's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the triune God. That's, that's the difference if I can give you just a simple way of understanding this. So those are some of the differences. Let me close with what I hope we all agree on, and I know we do in this church. We all agree that nobody is saved by water. Nobody is saved through baptism. We all agree with that. We reject the Roman Catholic view. We reject the Lutheran view of baptismal regeneration. We do not believe in baptismal regeneration. Nobody is saved through baptism, whether it's with a little water or a lot of water. There's not enough water that can save in and of itself. We believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Ephesians 289 should be on the tip of all our tongues. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that anyone can boast. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's not a result of any works that we do or any sacrament that we would administer. 
Now, does God use sacraments? He does. We refer to sacraments as the means of grace. That's very important. The means of grace. So, when we say salvation is by the grace of God, realize that grace comes through means. When we say salvation is by the grace of God, it's not as though God just you know zaps people with grace. I mean, He can. Don't misunderstand. He can do whatever He wants. But usually, He uses means. A friend who says, why don't you come to church with me? A brother who says, can I explain the gospel to you? A parent who says, sit down, we're going to read the Bible together as a family and pray together. Or parents who say on a Sunday morning, now let's get dressed, we're going to church. We're going to sing praises to God. We're going to pray. We're going to listen to the pastor talk about God's Word. Because those are the means of grace that God uses to bring about salvation. But it's through faith alone, not in any work that we do. And on that point, we all are in hearty agreement, and I hope we all can say, Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your grace. The grace that's found woven through all of Scripture. The grace that we see in the Abrahamic Covenant the grace that we see in the Davidic Covenant, the grace that we see especially and most clearly in the New Covenant. Father, thank You for the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank You for how You work in Your body. I thank You for how You work in this church. Father, thank You that there is a maturity level in this church where we can talk about areas where we disagree And yet, we're not fighting with one another. We love one another. I thank You for that. I don't take that for granted. I pray that You would continue to unite us as a body until we can come to the place where where we all agree on this issue of baptism. But Father, thank You where we are now. And we pray that Your blessing would continue to be with us the rest of this service. Amen. Let's stand and sing together Amazing Grace.